morning's scripture reading comes from Galatians. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is... A child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you that these words that we read are not just words on a page from some ancient book that really has no relevance to our lives now. But they have tremendous relevance because your spirit takes them and applies them to our hearts. So, Father, we pray that for your voice this morning, we pray for your voice to speak into our to our hearts, to speak into our minds, to help us to see what this gospel truly means and what it means for our everyday lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know that we've been uh, examining kind of slowly Paul's uh, letter to uh, the churches that were in the the region of Galatia. This was what would be the kind of modern-day Turkey area. These were churches that Paul uh, had started and planted on his journeys as he went throughout the ancient world spreading the message of the gospel of Christ. And we saw two weeks ago an overview of this book of Galatians, Paul's main argument, and that was that he was frustrated. It's a very intense letter. Because he perceived that those people that were in these churches were walking away from the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel that he taught them when he was there, that he founded these churches upon, the people were now walking away from them. They were being led astray into something that wasn't the gospel. And Paul was frustrated. He was upset. So it's one of the more intense letters that you'll read in the New Testament. If you were with us last week, Paul really laid the theological argument behind the gospel. And that is that we are made right before God, not because of our achievement, not because of the things that we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that the gospel is all about resting in his accomplishments and resting in his achievements in such a way that we are justified or made right before God by faith in Jesus Christ. But as is so often the case in the New Testament, Paul doesn't share that theology in a vacuum. He doesn't share that theology just to make the Galatian people smarter or be able to hand themselves, handle themselves in an intellectual discussion. But what he wants them to see is that this theology has incredible practical application for how they live their lives. 
It has implications for how we view ourselves and how we view others. It has implications for really everything about us and about life. So this morning what I'd like us to do briefly is to observe how the theology of the good news that we talked about last week affects everything and how it affects the most basic and practical things about our lives. And in doing so, hopefully, we'll observe a few things about the nature of what it means to be human and a few things about the nature of a relationship with God. The first thing that we see is something that really has to do with the very nature of humanity. It has to do with with us and how we live our lives, and that is that we always have a propensity or a tendency to try to define ourselves. We are always trying to define ourselves. Any of you that know me know that for a long time uh, I was a a career youth minister. So for about 10 or 12 years I worked almost exclusively with teenagers, middle schoolers and high school students. And uh, it was always interesting to observe them as they grew through those really important years. And it was always an interesting case study on the nature of humanity in some ways as well. One of the things I loved about it is I felt it was such a critical time in life. Think about when you were a middle schooler and high schooler and some of the big questions you were beginning to ask about your life. And one of the things that I often observed in teenagers is, is how rapidly they would change. One week, they would show up and they would be dressed as a kind of a, a skateboarder kind of person, right? And they'd, they'd wear all the clothes that skateboarders wear. And then they'd show up the next week and they'd be dressed for sports or dressed as if the biggest thing in their life was sports. And then the next week, they'd show up and they'd be dressed up looking like they just walked out of some sort of kind of preppy catalog that was out there. Now, what was happening there? What was happening was they were trying to establish their identity. They were trying to figure out who they were, and we would often get calls from parents wondering if their teenagers had become schizophrenic. And what we would just try to do is assure them that no, they're not schizophrenic. They're just trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to define themselves and what kind of person they are going to be. Now, though you and I get much more refined about it as we become adults, the same tendency often continues into adulthood. In some ways, we are always trying to define ourselves and to justify our existence, and we, but we just can't seem to satisfy it. We're seeking always to build our identity, to establish our status. We're seeking to find some sort of value for our lives or some sort of significance to ourselves. And often the most important question comes down to this. What are the sources or the places that we go to in order to define ourselves? Do we look for it in the approval of other people that we know? Do we come come obsessed and captured by what they think about us? Do we become beholden to the approval of a parent or a spouse or a boss? Do we try to maximize our successes and beef up our resume and and minimize and hide our weaknesses or failures for fear that we may lose the approval of other people? 
I read uh, this week that, that psychologists in the, in the psychological world are doing all sorts of studies on brain waves and how the brain functions. And one of the things that they discovered is that when you and I are ignored by someone whose attention means the most to us, that the reaction in our brains is similar to the reaction of actual physical pain. Now, why is that? Why is it so painful? Well, it's f- painful because we seek to, fi- to define ourselves often by other people. In all these cases, the locus or the, the source of our identity becomes something that is outside of us, something that isn't inside of us, but something that is outside of us that we need in order to define ourselves. Well, the self-esteem movement that really started in the late 60s but really had its heyday in the 80s decided to switch that around. And the self-esteem movement said that the locus or the source of our identity has to come from within us. We don't need anybody outside of us to define ourselves. We need to just take pride in ourselves. And as long as we believe that we're good enough and that we're smart enough, then we're going to be okay in life. And if we have moments of self-doubt or inadequacy, all we need to do is replay the messages of self-worth over and over again in our heads. But we all know from life and from experience that that doesn't always work. And the reason it doesn't work is because we were designed to find the source of our identity from something that is outside of us, not something that's inside of us. Ultimately, we need God to define our worth and our value for us. And what the gospel does is that the gospel calls us to find the locus or the center of our identity in the good news of Jesus Christ, in its own message and its reality in our lives. Because the scriptures tell us two really important things about how we ought to define ourselves as people. It defines our status for us in two really substantial ways. The first thing that it tells us about ourselves is it tells us that before we meet Christ or before we experience the gospel, the Bible defines us as slaves. It tells us that left to ourselves, we are slaves. Jesus, in the Gospel of John himself, said this. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The Scriptures tell us that you and I are born as slaves, though many of us are oblivious to the fact that we are slaves because sin has become our master. The scriptures tell us that ever since Adam and Eve committed that first sin, that the stain of sin is born on every one of their children and on us as well. Sin, like any addiction that's out there, has a cruel and controlling influence on our lives. It colors and infects everything about us. And because of that, it gives birth to all sorts of things. It gives birth to fears. It gives birth to unrest and anxieties and insecurities. But ultimately what it tells us is that before God, because of our sin, we stand before God as condemned. 
waiting, awaiting the punishment that we deserve because of our rebellion. But we stand before God not just as slaves to sin, but we stand before Him as actually His enemies, as ones who have been orphaned from the family of God. But thankfully, what the gospel tells us is that we don't have to stay in that state. The gospel tells us that Jesus provided a rescue for us. As our substitute, because of his sacrifice, you and I can be released from the punishment that we deserve. And we no longer have to live in fear of the punishment that we deserve. Because of his sacrifice, the gospel tells us that we don't have to be enemies of God anymore, but we can be reconciled with God the Father. And because of his righteousness and the goodness of Christ, we can be declared justified. We can be declared right before God, despite the fact that we remain sinners. And all of this happens through God's gift of grace and through his gift of faith. Because by faith we are united with Christ. We no longer are slaves to sin. It no longer is our master anymore. But now we are called sons and daughters of the King. Because what the gospel tells us is when we experience a relationship with Jesus Christ, we no longer can be defined as slaves. Instead, we are adopted as children. Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 8. He said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. One of my favorite kind of historical photos that out there that I think captures this in such a beautiful way, uh, it was a, was a, a photo that was taken uh, in the Oval Office of the White House when uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. was the president. If you've ever seen these photos, they're these wonderful photos of, of John F. Kennedy as the president of the United States sitting at the desk at the Oval Office, argument, argue, argue, arguably one of the most important desks in, in all of the world. And he's on the phone dealing with all sorts of international business. And there at his feet is uh, three or four-year-old JFK Jr. just playing with little blocks at his feet sitting at arguably the most important person in the world, and all he's doing is sitting there playing at his feet like a child. Now, if you and I wanted to go visit the president, we would have to go through all sorts of layers of security. Even then, we probably wouldn't get in to see the president, but we'd have to go through all sorts of metal detectors and background checks and and, uh, security procedures just to get into the Oval Office. Well, JFK Jr. could just run into that office anytime he wanted and play at his father's feet. Not because of anything special about him, but by virtue of the fact that he is the son of the president. You see, the term that's used here in both Romans 8 and in Galatians 3, the term Abba, is an Aramaic term. It's an Aramaic term that communicates a deep intimacy of relationship. 
And what Paul is doing is he's arguing in both these cases that you and I can have an intimacy with God the Father that no one can ever take away. We can boldly enter his presence confident that there's nothing that we have to do to earn his approval. We have his approval. We have it by the virtue of the fact that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the king. It says in Galatians 4, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And what Paul is saying is that all of the blessings that Jesus deserves from being the perfectly obedient son of the Father are ours by virtue of our adoption. Ephesians 1 tells us that that every spiritual blessing that exists from the hand of the Father in heaven is ours by virtue of our adoption, by virtue of the fact that we are sons and daughters of the King. One commentator on this passage uh, shared the story of John Newton. I don't know if you know the name of John Newton, but he was a, a famous hymn writer that uh, used to write most of the kind of beautiful hymns that we often sing in churches. But what most people don't know about John Newton is that before he met Jesus Christ, he was a pretty awful guy. He was involved in the slave trade. And what he would do is he would uh, sail ships into Africa and would kidnap women and children from their families Uh, gather them onto the boats and then sail them to other countries and then uh, sell them to people as property. It was his practice to do this. This was his job and he was known as one of the worst and most awful and most ruthless slave traders uh, in the world at his time. That is until he met Jesus Christ and his entire life changed at that point, so much so that, that he wrote as an expression of the grace that he'd received in Jesus Christ some of the most beautiful hymns that we sing in church about grace. But despite experiencing God's grace, you can imagine that John Newton must have struggled with thinking about his former life, thinking about the, the sins and the atrocities that he'd committed for so many years all throughout his life. So in order to deal with the guilt that kept kind of coming back into his mind, what he chose to do is to hang a sign over his mantle place. And that sign would remind him of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that sign said the words of Deuteronomy 15.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. I want you to think for a minute as you sit here uh, about your relationship with with God the Father. If you were to characterize it, how would you describe it? Or how does it feel to you as you sit here this morning? Does God the Father feel like a judge who is sitting up in heaven just waiting to kind of smite you for the sins and the mistakes that you've committed? Or does he feel like a, a disapproving father who simply tolerates you or deals with your phobials or your mistakes or the the things that you commit every day with some sort of tolerance? Or do you think of him 
as a loving father who takes absolutely immense delight in having you as his child. You see, the gospel tells us that when we get to heaven, we will receive the full blessings of God the Father, not because we deserve it, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of the fact that we've been adopted. We've been brought into the family of God. Our adoption has nothing to do with anything that we did to earn it. It has everything to do with Christ and His grace and His work on our behalf. But the greatest challenge for us comes in living in light of this. Living in light of the gospel, living in light of our adoption, because the gospel compels us to live as God defines us. Not as something we may contrive in us would define us, not as something that the world says defines us, but as what the gospel defines us. You see, Paul's frustration with the Galatians stemmed from the fact that though they were adopted as sons and daughters of the king, they were still living as if they were slaves. He writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You see, the Galatians, though they had been exposed and believed the gospel, they had gone back to living like slaves. They were living like slaves even though they were sons. They were still working for God's approval when they had actually already have it. They were not living in light of their new definition. They were not living in light of this new identity. And almost every commentator, when they write about this passage in Galatians, brings up the story of the prodigal son that's in Luke chapter 15. The story of the prodigal son tells us about uh, two sons uh, who were um, due to, to receive an inheritance from their father. And the younger son decided to cash in and to get his inheritance ahead of time. So he goes to the father and he asks for all of his inheritance. And what he does is he takes that inheritance and he goes and spends it. He spends it on, on wine, women, and song, and partying, and all the things that he could spend it at that point, so much so that he squanders it all. And his only option after he squanders all of his inheritance is to go and to eat the same food that pigs eat. It, eat. And we sitting there slopping it around with pigs, he comes to his senses. He comes up with a strategy and he says, I'll just go back to my father and become one of my father's slaves. So he gets on the road to go back to his father and the story tells us, that his father observed him coming from a far way off and ran to him. He ran to him and embraced him. And the son says to him at that point, he says, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can get out his strategy, before he can get out his idea to be his father's slave now, his father interrupts him. His father silences him. And instead, he declares that he's going to throw a great feast. Why? 
Because His Son, His Son has returned. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you experienced a relationship with Him, then you are a son and a daughter. And God rejoices over you just as that father rejoiced over his son. If you are a son of the father, no failure can ultimately crush you. No criticism can ultimately take you down. No sin or mistake can utterly ruin you. And if your entire world crashes down around you, it cannot destroy you because your identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. You are a son or daughter of the King, and no one can take that from you ever. Sonship is uh, a conference that's out there that travels around uh, uh, really internationally. And what this conference does is it invites people to participate, and what it does is it takes this concept of adoption and unpacks it over an entire conference. It talks about or trains people how to live in light of the fact that they are no longer slaves. Instead, they are sons and daughters of the king. And after going to one of these conferences, a woman wrote this story about her experience at her conference. She wrote this, One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to to hang up one of my dad's white shirts as well. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way, and I wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was, and I rather joyfully clothespinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I had not realized the impact that event and others like it had made on me. However, I was repeatedly convicted during the conference for not believing God concerning his delight in me and the gracious nature of my relationship with him. This memory kept returning to me. Now, you can hardly get through 24 hours of the conference without realizing your own heart is as murderous as anyone else's. So I wasn't primarily focusing on only being the innocent victim of my father's cruel anger. But as I remembered those scenes from the past, I saw that through the years I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I had not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel. That by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. So the next morning, I told my counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and said that I guess if the father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on, he would forget the shirt and hug me instead. 
You still don't fully understand, Jeff said. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. You know, the scriptures say to us in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. If you're here this morning and you feel the oppression of life, your life doesn't seem to feel like it's characterized by joy. It seems more characterized by the oppression of the circumstances that you live under. Know that you can be freed from all those things. Doesn't mean that that your life will get better. It doesn't mean those circumstances will get better. But what it does mean is that you will be adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And though everything else in your life may crash down around you, Nothing can ever take away your adoption. But if you're here this morning and you have experienced this gospel, you have experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ, then believe the gospel anew and afresh. Recognize that you are not, no, no longer called to live as a slave. Instead, live in light of the fact that you are a son. And that you have a Father in heaven that takes pure joy in the fact that you are his child.